children need to be quieted. So we will leave that there. Well, it was my full intention uh, to continue in the letter to the Hebrews this morning. And um, I had one of those rare mornings where it was very clear to me that it just wasn't ready. Um, the next portion that we're moving into is filled with Old Testament scripture. When you go back and read those Old Testament passages, where they come from, <clears throat> you wonder why the author of Hebrews put them in there. And how does it apply? <clears throat> There's a lot of explaining to do in this particular passage. I want another week with it to uh, spend time to make it as clear and as digestible a meal for the Lord's people as possible. I know that over-technical issues sometimes blunt our hearing, so I don't want to do that. And uh, I want to spend another week with that so that uh, I can... Give good account to the Lord. I didn't want to give you something half-baked and unclear, at least as much as I'm able to avoid. <clears throat> so, that being said, I would ask you to open your Bibles to 1 John, the first epistle of John. Something I don't usually do. It's fairly rare. I'm just going to look at one verse, though we're going to read four. All right? <clears throat> In fact, let's make it five. We'll make five, and that'll make it even more lovely. We're going to read chapter one, beginning in verse eight, and we're going to go down through verse Two, but we want to focus on verse one. All right. If you can stand with me one more time, <clears throat> we're going to give our attention to this passage, 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Brethren, this is God's holy word. <clears throat> Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. Now, I want you to look at those words really carefully. <clears throat> this is something that by and large we don't see in many congregations today. The idea of grace just kind of smooths over any sins that I do. But we have a command from the apostle not to sin. We'll talk about that. But it says right here, here's why I'm writing this letter. This is why I'm writing to you. 
that you won't sin. Don't sin. How dare he say that? And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. Father, we praise and thank thee this morning for the mercies that have come down already in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank thee for those that thou hast gathered here. How I pray, O God, for thy regenerate people. Oh, may they delight in Christ today. Feed their souls with the glory and with the beauty of Christ Jesus, the one Savior, the one mediator between God and men. I thank thee for our prophet. I thank thee for our priest. I thank thee for our king. And O King Jesus, we pray that thy mighty and holy reign would be upon us. I pray that in each of our hearts thou dost sit on the throne in glory. Father, I ask in thy mercies that thou wouldst fill the living stones here today. Fill the stones of thy temple with the power and the glory of thy spirit. Lord, we want to know thy presence in our midst. Where we are in sin and we need reproof, send it. Lord, where our knees are weak and our hands are hanging down, lift them. Lord, those that are weary in the battle against sin and the flesh and the devil, Lord, refresh them, strengthen them. Lord, for those who are in sorrow, comfort them and lift them with the joys of Christ. Father, whatever our situation today, whatever things we are facing, Christ is ours. We have a Savior. And Lord, how I pray that all of thy people this morning will joy in him. Now, Father, I do pray for the lost. There are those here who do not know thee. Wouldst thou in thy tender mercies draw near, show them their sin, show them their need for Christ. Teach them to repent and to believe. O oh, Father, thou art gracious, thou art good, thou art kind, thou art love, and thou art holy. Wouldst thou please fill us with a sense of thy holiness? We believe in the Holy Spirit. May that eternal life force move in us today. May our hearts be lifted up to heaven.
whether we are weeping or laughing with joy. Turn our hearts to Christ. Now help, O God, this weak vessel to preach thy word as one who will give account to thee. And I pray, my Father, that thy word would go forth in the glorious, transforming power of the Spirit. Justify the lost. Sanctify the saved. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. In verse 10 of chapter 1, the Apostle John describes the third error being taught by apostates from the churches of Asia. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him, meaning God, a liar. And his word is not in us. Obviously, we know that God is the truth. If he comes near us, if he deals with us, if his power fills our hearts, we will know that we sin. There will be no argument about that. So as we have seen, God in his, and his word are the truth and the objective standard for all that claims to be true. Let me repeat that. God and his infallible word are the truth and the objective standard. If you leave it up to us, we're going to fudge every opportunity at our sins. At the very least, even if we admit them, we'll waste a lot of energy trying to diminish in the people that know about it, diminish it in how horrifying it is. Every sin is horrifying because every sin deserves hell. Every one. That's hard for us to take. But that is the truth from Genesis to Revelation. And this is the objective standard. It will tell us what is and what is not sin. So, John makes clear that those who deny their sinfulness are the liars. It's not God. Those who deny their sinfulness like Satan do not have any truth within them. They might hear it, but it is not alive in them. This brings us to verse 1 of chapter 2 and to John's third correction. <clears throat> in it, the apostle deals with the issue of sin in the life of God's children. No regenerate soul delights in saying, I have sinned. If we know the living God, if his spirit has breathed life within us, if we indeed are new creatures, the thought of sin is revolting 
I don't mind using the word again, horrifying. If we had a taste, and if the Lord would grant us greater tastes of him and his purity and his holiness, that would give us a great measure by which we can see the darkness and the destructiveness of sin. The very thought of hell should make us evaluate how we think about sin. So, the apostle does deal with us here about believers and their sin. I would like to say, well, I quit that back in 62. I don't sin anymore. What's your problem? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. We are all sinners, even as saints. That's very difficult for us to wrestle with, is it not? <clears throat> the problem is that very often we don't bemoan our sin we don't look at it as our mortal enemy and we don't take the weapons God has given us to mortify it, to put sin to death, to become experienced and deadly sin assassins. That's what every one of us ought to be. He, the Lord has given us the ability to do that. The issue is learning how and applying. So, <clears throat> we're only going to consider two heads this morning. <clears throat> Number one, the apostle's admonition. And number two, the apostle's remedy. His admonition and his remedy. The, the title of our message this morning is An Advocate with the Father. An Advocate with the Father. May God in his mercy, and he is merciful, may God in his grace, and he is gracious, may God in his love, and John declares twice in this book, God is love. May he come by the power of his spirit, open our eyes and help us to understand first the truth and then to apply it in a way that brings him glory and transforms our lives. He's all about doing that so we can trust him. Okay, so let's begin with the apostles' admonition. The apostles' Admonition. John begins his third correction to the false apostles, the false teachers that have been infiltrating the churches with which he associates. And he gives them a very strong admonition. So let's consider who he admonishes, admonishes first. And it's my little children. My little children. Those are his recipients. Now, as we begin verse 1, we find wonderful 
and important instruction for elders, pastors, fathers and mothers, and anybody that teaches the Lord's children. The Lord Jesus himself named John and his brother, James, sons of thunder. There was a reason for that. It was because of their fervor and sometimes their misdirected zeal. That can happen. We can get all fired up and zealous for things of the Lord and do wonderful things completely the wrong way or with the wrong attitude or with the wrong tone. I mean, there's just so many ways that we can even take good things and they not go in the right direction. Uh, that was certainly the case with the sons of thunder. Lord, you want us to call down fire and brimstone on these unbelievers? He said, you don't know what you're made of. He, didn't, I, he said, I didn't come to do that. Now, he will come to burn up the earth. He will come to make a new heaven and a new earth. But as the God-man, as the incarnate son of God, he came to draw men to himself. In the midst of John's bold declarations in his first chapter, we see a sudden turn to his gentle pastoral spirit. And when I say gentle, I mean the Bible says gentle, it doesn't mean a weakling. <clears throat> it was a pastoral spirit. Emerging in chapter 2, verse 1. Here, John is an excellent example of the kind of leader that the Apostle Paul described to Timothy. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Well, John does that through all five chapters of this wonderful letter. <clears throat> That's what we see here before us. John uses the term little children seven times in this epistle. It seems likely that John is echoing the voice of his beloved master, the Lord Jesus. Jesus spoke to his disciples this way, little children, yet a little while am I with you. These were rough and tumble guys, at least some of them. I don't know about the tax collector. I don't know about some of them, but the zealots and uh, the fishermen, these were rough guys. These were strong men. And uh, the Lord Jesus is not uh, treating them when it says gentle in some kind of weak or effeminate way for a man's character. <clears throat> he speaks as firm, but gently as a father in the faith to God's children. Little children. He could have said, Okay, sinners! I've had enough of this! Why do you think you're Christians? Well, he could do that. 
But he didn't. He didn't. He said, little children. We see the principle, again, explained by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though we have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have we not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. That's beautiful, is it not? You have come to life to know the Savior. In that life, you repented of your sins. You believed on the crucified and resurrected Savior. He saved you. You have a new heart. Walk with him. But there are times, even for the little children that have been born of God's Spirit, there's a time to be firm. There's a time to be strong. There may be those rare times where there needs to be thunder. But John is exemplifying for us the general attitude of pastors, elders, teachers, and as I said, even fathers and mothers. So John uses it here uh, when he is instructing, correcting, or reminding these saints. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Little children, abide in him. Little children, let no man deceive you. My little children, let us not love in word neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. No doubt he would have said each one of those with perhaps a slightly different reflection, especially as he was warning them. But it was all with that pastoral love and gentleness. Now, this is no small point. Human experience shows us that balance in leadership, any kind of leadership, <clears throat> any balance in leadership and instructing others is not easy to attain. Often men are zealous, that's good, and forceful in their teaching. That's not bad in the right times. Yet they lack the grace, the strength, and the humility to be gentle servants of the Lord's people. On the other hand, there are those who are gentle, yet they lack the backbone, the strength, and the courage to be firm in correction and bold against error. Balance is a challenge. In other words, elders and teachers desperately need the transforming grace of the Holy Spirit so that they may reflect the blessed character of Jesus Christ as they deal with his dear children. You are Christ's children. 
I must be careful with that which is not mine by purchase of blood. And then he makes a declaration. These things write I unto you. Once again, we hear the voice of apostolic authority. When he says something like that, it's not filler. <laughs> He's saying, I am an apostle and I'm writing God's truth to you. This is authoritative. I'm not making suggestions. I'm not offering options. This is God's truth. This is not simply a letter, but it's the authoritative word from the head of the church to his body. Now, thirdly, <clears throat> there is his purpose in writing. Why did he write this? Oh, you already know. We've read it. But it's this, that ye sin not. That, this is, here's the letter for my writing. What would you think if you received a letter that said, here's why I'm writing this to you. What we want to hear is, oh, I really miss you. you know, it's a long time since I've seen you. Or, dear sir, please remit the following. But most of us don't realize that we have a letter from God from Christ through John. And as he was talking to those saints then, he's talking to us now. I'm writing to you so that ye sin not. That's a tall order. <clears throat> so, when we read that ye sin not, it's important for us to grasp what John is aiming at here. Chapter 1 tells us that the apostates, the false teachers, had a false view of God. Your doctrine of God is essential. In systematic theology, we call the doctrine of God theology proper. Everything is about God. Whether it's a chapter on justification or whether it's a chapter on adoption, whatever the doctrines are in Scripture, the most fundamental, the most important is your understanding of the revelation of God as to who he is, what he is like, and what he has done. That's essential. And depending on your view of God, that will make a huge difference in the way you live. <clears throat> because the false teachers had a false view of God, they also had a false Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians, he was very concerned about them because he, was, he thought there was the possibility that they could believe another Christ after he had preached the true Christ to them. <clears throat> Same thing. Here, he says... <clears throat> Because, or he is implying, because they have a false God and a false Christ, then they have a false view of the Christian life. You're going to live according to what you really believe. No matter what your profession is, you're going to live what you really believe. That's why we need to be saturated 
That's why we need to be soaked with the word of God. Not to be Pharisees, but to know and love our God in truth and to live our lives before him, to bring glory to him, that our, wit that our lives would witness day in, day out of how glorious and how gracious and how good he's been to us. <clears throat> the flesh militates against that in a hurry and with great vigor. <clears throat> we read of Paul's struggles in Romans 7. And anybody that's born of God's spirit can say, Amen. I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. <clears throat> so, the false teachers professed to be in fellowship with God, yet they were liars who deceived themselves and others and who made God himself a liar. And why? Because they walked in sin, proving by their disobedience that God's truth was not in them. Now, here we must be extremely careful. Balance time. It would seem logical to conclude that if a primary characteristic of the apostates is that they do sin, then the obverse would be that Christians don't sin. Right? Isn't that fairly obvious? That's right on the face. <clears throat> so we must ask, is John calling Christians to sinless perfectionism here? There are groups out there that call themselves Christians that have members that will say, I haven't sinned in years. They are deceived just by that statement. <clears throat> John is calling Christians to a biblical, spirit-led, word-informed, transformed life. And that should be obvious in his children. And it usually makes itself known by the struggle. The struggle against sin. Those that aren't struggling... Even as we sang a while ago, the enemy's often doing his work when we're asleep at the wheel. <clears throat> no, John is not calling us to sinless perfection. So let's think about that for a few minutes. As John Calvin says, quote, It is not only the sum and substance of the preceding doctrine, but the meaning of of almost the whole gospel that we depart from sin. You see, if you've been born again, if the Spirit of God takes up residence within you, you slowly begin to detest your sin. Now, I'm not saying you're not tempted by it. The enemy knows how to tempt us. The flesh knows what you and I have trained our flesh to be like. I talk back. I talk back. The Lord saves me. Um, there's still an impulse to talk back. But the point is, before we thought it was justified, now we begin to realize I'm sinning against the Lord. And we hate that sin because it's sin. Not just, oh, well, I messed up. and I really 
like fumbling the football in an important play. That's, that's, not, that's not it. It's the fact that we sin against a glorious, holy, pure, just, and good, loving God who has given his only son that we might have life. That's, he has saved us then to depart from sin and he gives us the abilities and the power to resist and mortify sin. That doesn't mean we're going to reach perfection in this world. We're not. Thankfully, we will reach a time when we will be sinless. But it won't be in this world. But that's no excuse. That's, that isn't kind of a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card where it's like, oh, great, I can go ahead and party with the world until Jesus comes back, and then I'll get good. No, it doesn't work that way either. That's deception. God saves sinners. He pardons their sins. He laid them all upon his son. And what God wants us to do is out of love for the one who gave us his sin, obey him. If your motive for obeying God is anything other than love for him, it's most likely just a fleshy work. Our response to God is this. He's a God of love. He shows us his love. He wants us to respond in love. Now that's pretty simple, isn't it? The issue is the more we love God, the more we find out our flesh doesn't. That, that makes us struggle. When, when younger Christians especially come to me and they're concerned and they're deeply troubled and they're saying, man, I, you know, I'm still having these temptations. And I go, good. And they look at me <laughs> and they go, well, you know, I mean, I still sin sometimes. I say, does that bother you? Yeah. I go, good. If you can live with your sin, you don't know Jesus. if you can live with it, if you can get comfortable, if you can snuggle up to it and say, I love this, I'm not letting this one go. If you're truly Christ's child, he's not going to let you have it. If you aren't his child, he'll let you have it. Are you reading this book? Do you know your God? That's important. To know him in his immensity. I remember being in uh, a Christian family's home. I had any, any doubt to believe that they were not. And we were all sitting at the table. It was after dinner. It was a dessert time. And as she was passing these things out, you know, she said, Oh, well, you know, I've still got this anger and this unbelief, but I'm just going to be that way till the rapture. Now, if you understand these scriptures, you will understand how anti-Christian that statement is. You're not going to make yourself perfect in this world, but you are at war with your sin. 
John writes, I'm writing to you because the false teaching that these guys are giving you is letting you think you can just live the way you want to. If you're born of God's spirit, you know that even in your struggles, there's something in you that wants to walk with Jesus. <clears throat> That's the purpose of the new birth. It's to be a new creature, a new man. It's something to live in. But apart from sin, th those words are, are all throughout, both the Old and the New Testament, because God is holy. That's why John begins his letter by saying, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What's he saying? God is absolutely pure and holy. And there's not one fleck of sin in him. But there is in us. So we need to learn how to deal with it. <clears throat> sin is a sad reality in the life of true believers. Let me say it again in the event that you're desperately uncomfortable right now. But I don't want you to be comfortable because of sin. It's a sad reality in the life of all true believers that sin still is there. What then makes them different from the false teachers? It's a good question, isn't it? The answer is found in this verse. I write unto you that ye sin not. Now, if he just stopped there, that would be a tough verse, wouldn't it? Do you not wrestle with sin? I do. I write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That is great news. That is good news. Here is the scriptural balance in the Christian life. It begins with John writing to turn them away from sin. And throughout his epistle, John makes it plain that one of the clearest distinctions between God's children and the devil's children is their daily life. It's not how much we can talk ourselves up as fine Christians. It's among other things. Now we're talking about one specific thing here. This is not all there is to the Christian life. The fact of the matter is, we sin. How do we deal with it? We wage war against our sin. And the first step in that, in that war is running to Jesus Christ. Amen. That's it. If you're not starting there when you're dealing with your sin, you're, you're waiting for a shipwreck. It'll come sooner or later. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Someone on our side. Throughout this epistle, John makes this plain. He sums it up this way in chapter 3. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness, your life, is righteous. What, what is it to do righteousness? It's to live according to what God commands. Or on that by again. It's living according to what God commands. That's what John is saying. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. Even as he, 
the living God, Christ, is righteous. He that committed sin is of the devil. Now, the verb tenses here are very important. Very important. <clears throat> he that doeth. The word is a continuous word. That means we have a bent toward and we have a life that reflects obeying God. Not a perfect life, but it's a life that's bent in one direction. It's like Christ is the glorious magnet. And day by day, he's drawing me toward him. It's all in Jesus. And then John goes on to say, he that committed sin is of the devil. Meaning a life of continued rebellion against God. And that can take innumerable forms. Now, for this purpose, thankfully, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Good. That's what we want. We want the Lord to destroy the works of the devil in us. Because we're still capable and we still do it. As Mark Jones says in his wonderful book, Knowing Sin. For those of you that we had copies of that, that were out for free for a while. And uh, I really hope uh, that that one doesn't just sit on your shelf. Well, I got a free book, and there it sits. You know, uh, let me encourage you to read it and to read it prayerfully and carefully. He says very plainly in there, as he talks about these kinds of verses, he says, when we sin, we're doing the devil's work. I mean, don't think of it that way. It's just kind of a spiritual boo-boo, Right? They're like, uh, no, it isn't. It's war against God. And that's what the enemy always wants. He loves for people to wear the name Christian, but live like the world. Oh, he loves them. He helps them. He makes them feel good about themselves. I'm okay. Uh, no, you're not. The Lord puts that glorious compass in us, <laughs> and it's always spinning, going, where's Christ? All right, there. I'm going that way. I'm going that way. So, whoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Now, that's overwhelming. But once again, it's all in the verb. The verb means continually staying in that. Continually living in rebellion against God. <clears throat> So, he says, whoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed, meaning the Holy Spirit, remaineth in him, in the person. And he cannot sin, in other words, he cannot live a life of rebellion against God, because he is, because he is born of God. That, that's one of the clearest statements in the world. It's also one of the most frightening the first time you read it. God's people don't sin. Again, you got to get into that verb. It, it matters. It's continuous. It's continuous. Well, are you telling me that Christians can't have bad habits? No. But I'm saying Christians ought to be warring against them with everything Christ gives them. It, he's given it to you. It isn't like you don't have it. None of his children are born uh, in spiritual poverty. He gives you himself. He gives you his spirit. He gives you his word. 
He gives you all of these things. In fact, I say regularly, I hope some of you have heard this a number of times, don't get tired of it. But before you're a Christian, you are at war with God. Are you clear? It's not like you're on the fence somewhere. There is no such thing. There is no middle ground. Jesus said, who he is not for me is against me. It's simple. That part of it is very simple. Now, before you know the Lord, you are his enemy. The scripture says that, Romans. You're his enemy. I thought he loved me. God loves sinners and saves them, but he doesn't love them to sin. Let's be clear. Once the Lord births you into his kingdom, you're at war with your sin. No war with God. Now that's the way it is. Until you are converted, what you do, every breath you take, you live in rebellion against the almighty God because he has called you to bow down to his son, Jesus Christ, to come to his son, Jesus Christ, to come for cleansing, come for new life, come for eternal life. But you're at war with him. Those of you that have not come to Christ yet, you need to realize the holy God who made the heavens and the earth, who made your body and who is sustaining you at this very moment. Your heart is beating, your breath is taking in air. That very God is showing you mercy because you're not in hell yet. And that God has called you to a full and free salvation in Christ Jesus. You don't have to climb the the Himalayan mountains in order to get to Jesus. A God of grace and mercy and love has given you his son as a substitute for for the pardon of your sins. Do you believe that? No, you don't believe it right now. You need to believe that because you're his enemy and he will deal with his enemies. He wants you to be one of his little children. He calls, come to me. Well, let's press on. So the the issue is John is not calling us to sinless perfection. That, That passage is very troubling. And it's one that you spend a lot of time thinking about. But it's got to do with the ongoingness of the verbs. So what John is saying is this. Don't live like the apostates, those who profess to be Christians, but fell away to false doctrine. He said, don't be like them. Don't walk in sin. Walk in the light. Walk in fellowship with God and by faith in Christ resist sin. I mean, the whole issue isn't, well, I'm going in, I'm pretty strong. I'm feeling pretty strong today. I'm, I'm going to take on the devil. Uh, that would be stupid. You don't want to do that. What you want to do is in all things. When you fail, the first thing to do is run to Christ. Get to Christ. If any man sin. Let him come to the Lord Jesus Christ because he has an advocate with the Father. 
Well, let's press on. We must realize that sinless perfection cannot be achieved in this world. It's never going to happen in this life. John isn't teaching that, neither am I. Nevertheless, while this is true, it must never become a license to sin. Oh, well, I'm saved by grace. Doesn't really matter if I sin or not. Um, that's not a good idea either. It's not biblical. God hates sin. Do you believe in a God that hates? He does. The Bible is full of it, both in the Old and the New Testament. And, and I'm, I'm not saying this in any boastful way. And I really am not. I'm the only person that I've known in my long life that has preached a sermon on God's hatred. Now, if the Bible's full of it, how come there's so much talk about his love without talking about his hatred? He hates all workers of iniquity, says the Old Testament. <clears throat> now, of course, the word hate needs to be understood in whatever context it's in. It tells us that if we don't hate our father and mother, we can't be disciples of Christ. But it doesn't mean to sit down and work up something against them. That's not the idea. It means when it comes down to deciding whether it's going with Christ or going with what I'm being told, it's, it means going with Christ. Amen. So, <clears throat> the team of engineers and scientists that send men into space know full well what human error is and that it's a reality. They craft planes and spaceships and undersea boats, and people can die in a moment in any of them. And they know that human error is a reality. They may not believe it's sin. They may not believe in God whatsoever, but they sure know that men fail. <clears throat> now, because they know that, does that become an excuse for them to perform a sloppy job? You get on the airplane, you see the pilot sitting there. Not a lot of people around you. You stick your head in and say, appreciate what you're doing. Oh, thank you very much. I say, it must be really intense flying a pilot, knowing that you've got all these lives back here behind you. Well, I don't take it too seriously. This, this plane's going to fly. I don't feel that well this morning, by the way. But, <laughs> but nobody's perfect. Would you like that discussion? Well, Christians have a way of having discussions like that. They won't put it just that way. But it's like, well, you know, after all, I'm just human. And I'm, you know, I mean, we sin and, and I'm saved by grace. My works don't matter. Mm, 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 back up. That's not true. Your works do matter. They do matter. If for no other reason, for the glory of God. We learn to get sloppy. We learn to live with our sins because, oh, well, I'm saved by grace. When you should be thinking, when I sin like that, I'm dishonoring the Lord who loved me and gave his son for me. Because he loves me and because I love him back, I'm going to take the, the weapons of the warfare that he's told me to take up and war against that sin. Well, <clears throat> do... Do engineers, do pilots strive for perfection? 
because they know that human life, millions of dollars, their reputations all hang in the balance? Those are worldly reasons. Would you feel comfortable being treated by a doctor who thinks human perfection is not possible? Therefore, I will not strive for the best possible treatment for your, your, your uh, operation. How encouraged would you, would you find that? But yet Christians think just like this. Well, I can't be perfect in this world, so that little sin that's been bothering me, I may just let it live a little longer. No. There's a war on. There's a war on. Always. You're at war with God or you're at war with your sin. This, the second one is the good fight. That's the battle you want to be in. Warring against your sin. I'd rather fail trying to mortify a sin than to just let it happen. Well, <clears throat> we as believers must realize on one hand that we cannot attain unto perfection in this life, but, but the, the grace of Christ, by the grace of Christ, by, the, by faith in Christ's cleansing blood, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we must do all that we can to renounce and reject every sinful practice in our lives. At least it's got to be in our target. It's got to be on our screen. You can't fight them all at once. This is true. It's, uh, I mean, uh, there are just times when our sins just pop up in en masse. The remainder of sin abides in our flesh. Christians should, by grace, do what we can not to sin. That's why John wrote to us. I'm writing this so that you won't sin. We have been saved to walk in the light with the God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. It follows then that we are to reflect the holy character of our Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now, if you're born again, what is it that ye would? What is it that ye would? You would obey God perfectly. Amen. That's what you want. That's what I want to honor him that loves me. I want to honor him who gave his son that I might have life. I, I, I want to live in a way he stopped me. On, on my headlong rush toward hell, he stopped me and he brought me to himself. What can I do today to bring you glory? Oh, that's sin. Okay, it's still hanging on. Let's go after it. The sword of the spirit. Let's go in the power of the spirit. If we, through the spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, says Paul, we shall live. Amen. So, every true Christian grieves that they sin, at least when they realize that they've sinned. Sometimes we can go a long time in something we think's okay. And as we're maturing, the Lord begins to show us in the scriptures, wait a minute, have I been wrong about that? By God's grace, let us do all we can to flee sin. 
I mean, young people, children, if you knew, if you knew that there was a criminal loose in your neighborhood and that he might come into your house and do great violation to you, would you leave the windows open? Would you leave the door open? Would you say, let's, let's turn up the video and just immerse ourselves out of this life? Well, that, no, that, that won't work. You would be watching, wouldn't you? Parents, if you thought that there was a molester in your neighborhood, would you say, what? Kids, go and play. No problem. Or would you be watching them like a hawk? And would you, the minute you saw someone you didn't know talking to them, Dad, wouldn't you be going right over there? Or would you sit back and say, hmm, we'll see if this goes bad or not. We need to live like Christians. We need to walk according to the word of God. We need to learn how to put on the whole armor of God and we need to learn to fight the battle. The gospel is not a device by God to promote guilt-free sinning. It is the power of God unto salvation, deliverance from the guilt of sin, deliverance from the power of sin, and someday deliverance from the presence of sin. Glory to God. The apostates taught in such a way as to minimize and distort the doctrine of sin. And that's why John's writing what he does. If you say you don't sin, you're a liar. Don't listen to these men. <laughs> no, the apostle, the teaching of the apostles brings believers to see the reality and the horror of sin, to acknowledge their sin, to repent of their sin, and to believe Christ for the cleansing of their sins. Well, let's talk about the apostles' remedy. First of all, here's the condition. He has told us, I'm writing to you so that you sin not. He goes on to say now, if any man sin, the apostles' pastoral balance of I write unto you, is here, if any man sin, and if any man sin. So he's acknowledging that it happens to Christians. He's not saying, open up the floodgate and have at it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, war against sin. And when you do in that war, when you fail, when you fall, you've got an advocate with the Father. He doesn't just say, crawl around on your hands and knees and groan and, and complain he says, you've got an advocate. You've got somebody in heaven on your side arguing your case. My blood cleansed him. Amen. Clearly, he wants his readers to renounce sin, to flee from sin, to hate sin, to have nothing to do with sin. He wants them to know that the mercy and grace of Christ are never to be thought of as a license to sin. Well, what are they to do when they sin? Oh, this is beautiful. It's those words, those four words. We have an advocate. Yeah. 
We have an advocate. God doesn't wind you up, so to speak, when he saves you and tosses you out and says, okay, perform. He doesn't do that. He gives us everything we need to walk with him. That's why we need to take advantage of all of the means of grace that he gives us. <clears throat> He's given us a new heart. Is that, is that not true? He's given us a new heart. That means headquarters has changed. <laughs> our headquarters and our impulses, we have new desires. Now, there's still the old ones hanging around, but all of a sudden there's a new life. There is some desire to avoid my sin, to avoid those things that I know that dishonor God, that, that defile the name of Jesus that I wear. <clears throat> no, we've got an advocate. An advocate is somebody who is, is on one's side. It's someone summoned to one's aid. It came to mean one who was called alongside to help, particularly in a law court. A legal assistant who pleads a cause or presents a case. This is the same word our Lord used when describing the Holy Spirit. He said, I will pray the Father and he will give you, he shall give you another comforter that ye may abide, he may abide with you forever. The use of the word another tells us that Jesus himself is a comforter, a helper, and the Holy Spirit is another one like him. God has given you everything to be in the battle. Are you in it? He's given you everything. He's given you his son. Is, do you think that there's one thing? Do you, can you imagine the Lord sitting up there going, yeah, yeah, well, here's Pollard. There's some things here, again, that's really dishonoring to me, not edifying to the Lord's people. It needs to be dealt with. But I'll let him have that one. Your heavenly father hates sin. He hates it. He hates every expression of it. Thought. Word, deed, he despises it. My friends, these four words should fill your heart with joy. We have an advocate. We have someone who loves us, seated at the Father's right hand, who intercedes for us every moment of our lives. The infinitely holy God, who is offended with our sin, has appointed not only a comforter for sinners, but an advocate. He doesn't just comfort me. He advocates my cause. I spilled my blood for his life and his sins. His sins are washed away in the flood tide of my blood. These mine. Man, I think that would thrill your soul. To secure the salvation of his dear children for all eternity, the Father has appointed the Lord Jesus Christ to plead their case. The perfect Son of God in infinite and holy love with his Father. They don't argue about us. They're not up there going, well, we can forgive him with this one or not. Like, he, uh, let's see, boy, the count. He's lost count, but we haven't. How many until the hammer comes down? Your doctrine of God matters. Your doctrine of God matters. 
your doctrine of salvation matters. How do you understand grace? Do you understand the way Paul taught it? Do you understand it the way John's teaching it here? I'm writing to you so that you sin not. That means we can resist. We can rebel against sin instead of against God. We don't have to sin. We will because we'll give in to it. But we don't have to sin. We're not under Satan's power anymore. But we'll still listen to him. Remember, you used to think that was so bad. It's not that bad, is it? Go ahead. Just go back. In fact, you'll probably enjoy it more now than you did then. He's an expert at this. Run to Christ. Run to your advocate. Run to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's on your side. He's not up there waiting like, oh, I was waiting for you to come in. You finally came out of the pig pen. Now I'm going to tear you up. Now he does discipline his children. He does chasten his children. But he doesn't throw his children away. He doesn't throw them under the bus. He doesn't say, I've had enough with that one. He loves his children. Don't sin. And when you sin, you have an advocate. Go into the war with that in your mind. <clears throat> we see the eternal love and mercy of God the Father. He is the offended judge of the universe, and yet he gave his son to be our advocate. God the Father. Oh, we must never have the idea that the Father grows angry and would destroy us, except that Jesus jumps in to speak on our behalf. That's the way a lot of people think. Oh, God the Father's up there, and it's like, oh, it's, I've had, I'm, I'm taking him out today. And Jesus goes, no, don't do that. Mm -mm. Here's that doctrine. God, who was offended, satisfied his own anger on his son. Now, that doesn't mean you won't be chastened. But it won't be judgment and throwing you away. He may make you eat some bitter, bitter, bitter results of laying your hand to sin again when, when you know you shouldn't. But you have an advocate with the Father. He isn't up there waiting for the moment for you to just say that thing again or do that thing again and say, okay. Now I'm going to destroy him like God said about Israel. All right, Moses, get out of the way. I am going to wipe them out and I'm going to make a new nation for you. And what happened? Moses said, no, no. Those that are in Egypt, you know, are going to say, well, he dra dragged them out into the wilderness just to kill them. Wow, why did he do that? You know, but what's the idea there? Moses is advocating. He's saying, these are your people. These are your people. Well, God's not up there angry. He is the offended judge who gave his son for us. Amen. He gave his son for us. He's satisfied. He raised Jesus from the dead. He's satisfied with his sacrifice. He's our advocate. Oh, well, the idea of an advocate includes intercession. We don't have time to go into that right now. But he is the mediator, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And everything that he has done is for our salvation. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. When we sin, our advocate's very presence in heaven 
pleads a perfect righteousness for every one of God's children. Do you understand just the very fact that Jesus is there? If somebody could knock him off his throne, we might be in trouble. But that'll never happen. Jesus Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. The advocate, my assurance, your assurance is right there at the Father's right hand. And it was the Father that gave him to be our assurance. There's no argument between the two of them. Never. So, (laughs) Isaac Watts beautifully said it. My advocate appears from my defense on high. The Father bows his ear and lays his thunder by. Not all that hell or sin can say shall turn his heart, his love away. It's because you have an advocate. This is what John was building up to in verse 7 when he said, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. It's not a license to sin. It's one of the things you use to war against your sin. It cost the blood of Christ, the Holy Son of God, for me to be set free. I'm not going to go back and wallow in it. It'll be a stiff fight. You'll find out how strong your flesh is. What young believers often miss, and I hope you won't miss it here, is they they still don't realize how powerful the sin in your flesh still is. And it can trip you up in a moment. You always need to remember your advocate. It isn't, well, I'm going to be tougher today. No, it's run to Christ and say, oh, grant me the strength to honor you today. So let me make a few applications and we're done. Because Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate, believers are justified. Our case cannot be lost because our advocate pleads his perfect obedience and his shed blood for our righteousness. We have a perfect righteousness in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The very righteousness of God. You don't ever want to go to God and parade your righteousness. You always want to go clothed in Christ's righteousness. That which he gave on Calvary. That, his life that he gave on Calvary that you might be righteous. Secondly, because Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate, believers shall all be glorified. Our case simply cannot be lost. We have the perfect lawyer. We have the perfect advocate. And he's got the perfect case. I paid for all their sins. Our our case cannot be lost. Christ's perfect righteousness pleads for us until the glorious day that God transforms us into the very image of Jesus. That's coming for every one of us. Can't wait. But I have to. You have to stay in the battle. The battle's not fun. The world is all about fun. No. I'm not saying fun in and of itself is a bad thing. All I'm saying is living for it is the way the world thinks. Living for Jesus is the way the Bible teaches. And so that all that we do would bring glory and honor 
to him. I want to think in a way, Lord, that brings you glory. I want to speak. I want to speak to my friends. I want to speak to my parents. I want to speak to my children in a way that brings you glory. Help me because I, I, there's, it seems like there's no control on this mouth. Help me. And he'll say, oh, there's control. First, you have an advocate with the Father. And he's given you his spirit and he's given you his word. Now trust him and walk in righteousness. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate, we may be accused by Satan, but we cannot be condemned. Amen. When Satan accuses me of breaking God's law, I may plead, Jesus Christ, the righteous, has kept the law for me. And I am righteous before my God, not for anything that I have done, but for everything that he has done. Amen. And I look to him and I trust him and I walk with him. And love, in love, in love is where your obedience should be coming from. I mean, you go, oh, I sinned. I'm going to read my Bible more. The Lord is not going to be impressed. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sinning and so... Um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to pray a little bit more. Won't be heard. Well, you know, some of the people in the church really do some things that I would never do. Not going to give you one inch of favor with God. A lot of people can stop doing bad habits. No, it's got to rise up from a heart that's been melted in love with the Lord Jesus Christ because he's done everything infinitely to save you from your sins. Amen. Finally, <clears throat> uh, two more finalists. Because Jesus Christ is our advocate, we may always come into the presence of our Father. When you sin, you don't feel like running to God, do you? You want to hide you want to run the other way. Mm -mm. You've got to teach those feet to run to Jesus. Amen. And because Jesus the Christ, because Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate, we may be accused by Satan, but we may not be condemned. Again, remember, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And he can chasten you sore. But that chastening isn't for you to run and hide. That chastening is to bring you back to him in sorrow and repentance. When Satan says, I am worthy of death and condemnation, our argument and reply shouldn't be, uh-uh. We should say, Jesus Christ the righteous has died for me. I am not yours. I am his. Pathetic and weak as my flesh is, I am his. We have an advocate with the Father. And daily when I see my sins, my failures, and my limitations, I may plead. Jesus Christ the righteous pleads his perfect righteousness on my behalf today and for all eternity. That should free your heart to say, whatever I do today, I want to do it out of love for Christ. Amen. Not of trying to make a deal with him. He doesn't do deals. 
So, O sinner, I say to you, whether you are an unbeliever or whether you are a believer struggling, one, if Christ is your advocate, your case will be heard. You will not be forgotten. If Christ is your advocate, your case cannot be lost. And if Christ is your advocate, the judge of heaven and earth will and he must grant you favor. Why? Because his son is our advocate. In correcting the third error of the false teachers, John gives a wonderful balance for the Christian life. Christians must do all they can by faith in Christ, according to the word, to resist sin. And when they do sin, they have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous, seated at the Father's right hand. Our salvation is certain because we have an advocate with the Father. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your love gift. Thank you for Christ, our Lord. Oh, how we need thee. Help us to hate sin and help us to do thy works, not the devil's, not the flesh's, not the world's. Help us, O oh Lord, in our battle. Bless our young people. Give them encouragement. Teach them these things now and may they walk faithfully with thee. And when we sin, may we ever remember we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I pray it in his name. Amen. Please stand with me. We will hear from Hebrews. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead. Our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. I want that for you. I want that for me. <clears throat> Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go in the name of Jesus.